Seated. Welcome to HBF this morning. If you have your Bibles, we turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3. We're in our Getting Out of Egypt sermon series. Great singing, great holiday weekend, wonderful time of Thanksgiving. I pray that you enjoyed the time that you've had with your family, with your friends, with your loved ones, with your enemies. Went out and loved some enemies, right? Had some dinner with them. Whatever it takes. If you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat rack in front of you. Be turned to page 85. In the seat in the front in the Bible that is in front of you in the seat rack, and uh, man, what a wonderful! Um, it's kind of been busy with every, with holidays and all, but it is wonderful to have a time with family. It's wonderful to have rain, and uh, it's just wonderful to be together this morning as the change of seasons happens. I look up and my vision for the year is gone, and we're already in Christmas, just like that. Man, it goes quick, doesn't it? Time moves so quickly. And, uh, you know, that's what I want to talk about this morning. You know, what a difference 40 years makes. As we look look at Exodus chapter 3 this morning, 40 years has gone by, and God is now ready to call uh, Moses. He's going to give him a clear call out of Egypt, and uh, he's going to uh, bring the children of Israel into the promised land. When he left Egypt, of course, he was 40. When he he is at this point in Mount Sinai, as we're going to see in Exodus chapter 3, he is 80 years old. And there was a time in Moses' life when he believed he could actually do something for God. But now he's 80 years old, and I think he thinks the sun is set, and uh, everything has gone by. So today, if you're this morning, if you're, if you're a little older, maybe a little longer in the tooth, and you think, well, man, my time has come and it is gone, not necessarily. Not necessarily. You know, the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. You know, there are people right now running marathons at 80, 90 years old, which is hard to believe, but there are a few, not a lot, but there's a few. A few people still out, you know, pushing themselves to the limits, um, uh, not necessarily for God, but for whatever cause that they may have. And, uh, and that's a noble thing, and it's an admirable thing. But I think when we find Moses here in, in uh, Sinai, in the backside of the desert, as it's called, uh, I think he's at the point where he's just pretty content. He's just kind of ready to settle in and let things go by. But this morning, I want to remind you that God is calling men, and he's calling women. And he's still calling us to do an impossible task. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. What matters is that when the I am calls you, you're ready to say, yes, I'm ready. But in the case of Moses, he says, who am I? And I think a lot of times we feel that way. Who am I to be used of God? Who am I? to be in God's stead, reconciling men to God. Uh, And who are we? That's a great question to ask. And this morning as we go through this text, I want to just kind of take some time and talk about how God clearly calls people and some of the reasons why he calls them. And this will be two parts. I'll be talking about this more next week. But but if you have your Bible, let's stand and let's read Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. By the way, Brenton, wherever you're at, shout out to the Adrian... Uh, what do you guys call down there? Blackhawks. Man, they, they whooped some tail yesterday, praise God. All right. Uh, Exodus chapter 3 and verse 1. The Bible says, Exodus 3 and verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked and Behold, the bush was burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that, uh, saw that, he turned aside to see God 
called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place where thou, whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt, and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for now, or for I know their sorrows. Verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them out of the land unto a good land and a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites the Hittites the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites now therefore behold the the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me and I also have seen the oppression where the Egyptians oppressed them come now therefore and I will send thee unto Pharaoh that thou mayest bring forth my people the children of Israel out of Egypt Therein lies the call. But I want you to see Moses' response in verse 11. And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children children of Israel out of Egypt? Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to look into this passage this morning. Thank you for calling a man like Moses, uh, Lord, to save your people Israel, to give us the law, Lord, to give us the promises that come through Jesus Christ at length. Lord, we're, we're so thankful this morning as we gather together and we think about your call. Lord, you're calling men to Christ today. You're calling men and women to know you as Lord and Savior. You're calling Christians to answer the call to do the impossible, and that is deliver people uh, from hell. Lord, to deliver people from bondage, to deliver them from the, the bands of sin. And Lord, we can't do that in our own power. We need your power. Lord, may we be like Moses today and understand that it is not our, our strength, but it's your strength. It's not our power It's your power. It's not our plan, Lord. It's your plan. It's not our purpose. It's your purpose. Heavenly Father, encourage your saints today. Lord, we are thankful. We have a grateful heart, and we give thanks to you today. We praise you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So this is a really clear call of God, very clear in verses 1 through 10, that God is calling Moses. But I want to just look at some attributes that prepared Moses for this calling, because we know that he was was an eager beaver, right? He was ready to go uh, many years earlier. But, of course, that didn't work out because he did it in the power of his flesh. So the first thing we need to see here is that God calls the content. Before God ever called Moses uh, to go back and deliver his people, uh, he was content. Moses was now a family man. And in Exodus chapter 2, we see Moses... Uh, a, a uh, Moses um, uh, had a child. Uh, he was... In, I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 2, we saw Moses was a persecuted child... Uh, he was a prince in Egypt, and then we get to the third part of his life in chapter 2, and we see him with Ruel the Midianite, of course also called Jethro. So the scripture makes it abundantly clear that Moses was very content to shed his identity as a royal for the humble life of a shepherd. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, uh, the Bible tells us, By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, 
for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now heretofore, Moses has not seen him who is invisible that, we're, that we know of, uh, and yet he is, he, if he has, we don't, we're not told about it, and he is now wandering through the desert and he sees Jesus. Yet the Bible records that, that he moved by faith, right? It kind of overlooks and glosses over all the other troubles that he had. The account in Hebrews is cleansed by the blood of the lamb. So we don't see Moses' murdering and running from Pharaoh, but instead we see his heart to identify with God through his Hebrew heritage. And because Moses was content to follow God's will, God blessed him with a wife and a son in Midian, right? And Moses was content, it says, to dwell with the man. That man was, of course, was of course Jephthah or Ruel. And he gave Moses Zipporah his daughter. And she bare him a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. Even in the naming of his son, he really is kind of homeless, right? He's a stranger in Midian. Uh, he's Exodus, uh, or Egypt is not his home. And so really his home is yet to be seen. And of course that will eventually be the land of Israel, which, by the way, he's still not seen. But he will in a time yet to come. Uh, so Moses was content. So that's important. The Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. So there's freedom in being content. And if you think, man, that sounds familiar, it's because I've already touched on this last week. But I wanted to start there because I think that's a good place to start. When we think about God's calling, are we content? Why? Why? Because contentment in itself is not the virtue that God honors. There, you can be content, but it's not just contentment. Uh, there are some who are content with a sinful lifestyle. Right? You can be content with, with things that, that are not going to honor God. But God blesses those who are content with godliness. Right, Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I believe that the lifestyle in which Moses was leading was something that would honor God, would honor his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was continuing in the things that he had learned and was going forth in faith. And God found that contentment to be exactly what he needed as he was now a family man instead of a man of the world. And God blesses those who are content with godliness over the things of this world. One of the warnings, by the way, the reason I'm kind of camping out on this is because for us right now, right, this sermon series is about getting out of bondage. And we are all looking to that, that day, that wonderful day, that, uh, the, the day when we're caught up and we're out of here. Right? We're looking forward to that day when we fly away. Right? Mitch and, and uh, Caleb flew away yesterday, but they didn't fly to heaven. They went to Mexico, right? So we're praying for them as they're in Mexico. But not just getting on an airplane and flying away, but flying to heaven, right? We're caught up in the air and we're out of here. We, we're looking forward to getting out of this place. However, we're still here. And while we're here, it's important that we focus on the right things. Godliness with contentment is great gain. In case you just think I'm spinning a yarn, in your Bible, in the book of Colossians, the Bible tells us in chapter 1, written directly to the Laodiceans and the Colossians, if ye then be risen with Christ, what are we to do? Seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He doesn't say, now when you get to heaven someday. No, he says now. Right now, if you are... Right, If you are risen with Christ, now you're like, well, I haven't resurrected yet, but we are positionally there. We're as good as there. That's, that's, what, that's, that's, what, that's why we're justified. Just as if I've never sinned, we're already positionally resurrected because our life is hid in Christ. All of those theological principles are true, but practically what it's, it really boils down to is we're to set our affection on things above right now. That's what Moses was doing. There, he had decided, you know what, there's nothing in this world 
that's, that's really going to satisfy me. His attention was set on things above. Set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. Now, that's not a suggestion. That's a command of the New Testament church. You didn't know we had commandments, did you? Right? So if you want a command today, that's something you can take to the bank. You say, what can I do today to just obey, to obey God? Well, set your affection on things above, not on the things of this earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, here comes the reward. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Mortify, right? Kill, like the mortician. Therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication. What does that look like? Real practically, what does that look like? So if you're a Christian, and you're engaged in fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, you're desiring things you ought not, evil concupiscence, which is just unbridled sin, um... Uh, covetousness, you want what everyone else has. Well, all the idolatry that you can think of, you're worshiping something other than God. Well, guess what? Your attention is not set on things above. And you know what? That's not where God needs us to be. Our affections are not set on things above either, which is most important, right? The desires of our heart need to be upon the things of God. Uh, And uh, he reminds us, Paul reminds us in Colossians 3, 6, those are the things, right, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. There's actually wrath that comes to those who identify with those things. So why, being dead to those things, would you identify with them? Well, because you're not content. You're not content with the promises of God, right? You've got to say, you know, at some point, we've got to say, you know what? I really believe the Bible above everything else. And so I don't have to have that new thing. I don't have to run to the boat and see if I can win another, you know, hundred dollars or whatever. I, I just, I, I, I believe that God will provide. I believe that God is my sufficiency. There's nothing wrong, by the way, with having things. God provides all things. He's a good father. He wants to provide good things. The point isn't things. The point is where our, our, our affection is set. So Moses was content. And I think contentment's important when it comes to being godly. Godliness with contentment, right? You can be content with sin. You can be content with a lot of things. You can be content living in a nice country like America. You can be content with a good job. You can be content with your education. You can be content with a lot of things. The question isn't, are you content? The question is, are we content with the promises of God? Are we set on things above? Are we content with the things that God has for us? If we are, then guess what? God's ready to call. He's looking for you. He's looking for people that are set on things above, who have their mind on things above. The best leaders are content followers of Christ. Again, not just followers, but followers of Christ. That's why Jesus chose 12 faithful men to represent him as apostles. They were not perfect men. Uh, you know, one of them was the devil, so he got cast out, but we got Matthias in his place. So he has these 12 apostles and they go forth and his admonition to the chief one, Peter, there to the Jews was simply to follow him. Follow me. And I'll make you a fisher of men, right? That's, that's how he started with them. Ultimately, he follow, follows, follow, them to, follow him to their death. What does that mean? They put everything, they were content to believe in his promises above all else. If you are content to follow Jesus, you're certainly a candidate to be someone today who would answer the call. Not just to salvation, of course. Salvation is where we start. But really, to that consecration where God wants to use you for something even greater. So the clear call of God is revealed through the fact that God calls the content. It's also revealed through the fact that God calls the faithful. Now in our text in Exodus 3.1, we see that Moses, now it says, now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. 
the priests of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. So Moses, you'll notice here, he kept the flock uh, of God. Now that, or the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. That wasn't his flock. Moses kept the flock that was entrusted to him. It wasn't his, it was his father-in-law's. Men, the, the family and the ministry and the job and the skills, all the things that God gives us, they're not really our own. They're really God's. There was a radio broadcaster named Rush Limbaugh. He used to say that his talent was on loan from God. And uh, some hated him, some loved him. That's not the point. That was an astute observation. Because all of our talent really is on loan from God. God is the one who gives us the talent and the skills and everything that we have to manage. And the most precious of which, by the way, is the flock that he gives us. How you treat your children... And the people of God gives you God, and the people that God gives you charge over will speak volumes about your ability to lead others to God. That's why the character qualities of a pastor or a deacon are based on how well we steward our relationship with our wife and children. It's 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 tied right together. Why? Because if you're not faithful to steward uh, like a good shepherd, you're not faithful to lead like the Lord would have you to lead. So Moses led the flock and trusted to him. He didn't just keep the flock, although he did. He also led them. And he led them here to the backside of the desert, to Mount Horeb, which is synonymous with Mount Sinai. And why did he lead them there? Well, he led them there to feed them. He led them there to, to give them food. He was providing for them. Paul identifies this location, by the way, as being in Arabia, in Galatians, because that's the place he resorted to for three years uh, when God revealed to him the New Testament mysteries. It's worth noting that Paul probably identified greatly with Moses since Moses was a murderer and Paul had consented to the death of Stephen and other Christians like Moses with a zeal to serve God, yet it was working against him. The, <clears throat> the location of Mount Sinai was closed uh, to the public until 2019 when the Saud family created a tourism district on the western region of Saudi Arabia um, and they freed it of Sharia law. I didn't know this. I actually, I knew about this mountain, but I, I knew where it was at, but I did not actually realize they opened it. There was videos, people sneaking in, doing videos and all that. Well, in 2019, uh, Saudi Arabia opened this area up. <clears throat> so you can, you know, you can charter a jet and go there and go see what's going on. But um, it's amazing. It's a mountain called uh, Al, uh, Mount Al-Law or Jebel El-Laws, depending on which pronunciation you have. Which, when you look at that, El Laws would mean the, uh, the God of the law. And so, Galatians 1.17, the Bible says, Now <clears throat> went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into... Uh, he says, neither went I up to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, uh, to them which were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again in, uh, unto Damascus. So, as Paul's given his testimony to the Galatians, uh, actually concerning the law, uh, ironically, he tells them, I went... I didn't go to Jerusalem. I went down to, to Mount Sinai, which is in Arabia. Galatians 4.25, when he's using the analogy of Hagar, uh, he says, For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. And so this is the place Elijah retreated to when he fled uh, the wrath of Jezebel in 1 Kings 19.8. It's also worth noting that Moses, Elijah, and Paul retreated to Mount Sinai as part of the, the fulfillment of their call to serve God. <clears throat> of course, we're seeing this morning Moses received the call at 80 years old to go back and deliver his people 
after being in exile for 40 years. Elijah went, uh, uh, was there and received encouragement to return to the ministry. Remember, there were 7,000 prophets that had not bowed their knee to Baal, right? It was there at that same location that God encouraged him and, and said, you know, basically, get back in there, Elijah. Get after it. Don't be afraid of Jezebel. And then, of course, we saw already that Paul resorted there in the process of his call to serve the Lord as he was steward of the mysteries of God and uh, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so it's a key place on the planet. Uh, and what you see about all of those men is they're faithful. They're faithful men. They weren't all perfect men. As a matter of fact, two of the three were murderers, right? And so uh, God can use anybody, he, he'll, and he often does. Uh, but I want you to understand this. What we want to have here practically today is faithful men. You don't want to be a faithless man. You don't want to be a faithless man. Now, you can be born again even, but not be full of faith, right? You can kind of just be kind of half-cocked, kind of wishy-washy, or even cold, right? We want, we want to be a, a church, and I want to be a man, and I want you to be men and women that are full of faith. To be full of faith, we've got to be full of the Word of God, right? Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And we've got to be filled with the Spirit. Now, we have all the Spirit that God gives us the moment we get saved, but that cooperates with the Word of God, right? And so it teaches us all things, whatsoever He has said to us. The Comforter, the Holy Ghost, teaches us His Word. So if we want to be full of faith, we need to be full of the Spirit. And we, even though we have all the Spirit and we have all the Word, what we need to do is couple those together so we can get the power. Right? You can have a motor and you can have gasoline, but unless those two come together, there's no power. Right? We've got to bring those together, but we do that through faith, don't we? Now, this is important because you say, yeah, I want that, I want that. Well, that's going to be revealed in the things that you steward because we, can't, we cannot be trusted to keep, uh, to keep the, 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 the big things of God or lead the flock entrusted to us if we're not faithful with least. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, the Bible says in verse 8, as Paul is speaking, giving instructions to how the church should behave itself, he says, but if any provide not for his own, and he's speaking here to men, and specifically for those of his own house, he hath, you guys know this verse, denied the faith and is worse than infidel. Now, it doesn't say he's lost. He just says, if you, are, if you profess to know Christ and you're born again, yet you do not provide for your house. Now, this isn't a pastor. This isn't a deacon. This is just a dude, right? This is just a dude, right? Rolled in the door today. Dude, perfect, but not perfect, right? This is the dude imperfect. And he rolls in the door and he's not providing. He says, I'm saved. Oh, yeah, hallelujah, praise God. All lip service and doesn't take care of his house. I didn't say this, so don't get offended. Paul says, you're worse than a lost man. That's what an infidel is. Like, if you profess Christ and you don't take care of your business, well, you're a loser. I mean, really a loser. Like, you're losing your testimony. You're losing out on the promises of God. You're losing out on glorifying God. I mean, you're a loser. And I make no apologies for saying that. Because that's what the Bible teaches. God wants you to be a winner. He wants you to win Christ. He wants you to put your eggs in his basket. He wants you to get all the promises. He wants you to fill up your cup so you have something to give others. And it's just really a decision of, well, you know what? I need to get on God's... I need to follow God. I need to be serious. I need to follow a real man. And a real man is Christ. There's a lot of real men out here that aren't real men, right? 
just because they can bench press a lot or they can, they, I won't get into all the immorality, but there's a lot of men that they're, they're breaking their arm, patting themselves on the back for how immoral they are. Well, the world may applaud that, but God doesn't. The definition of an infidel is an unbeliever. Denying the faith is, is refusing to take care of your responsibilities as a father, as a patriarch. That's, that's denying the faith. Now, I want to give men an opportunity here to respond. Not really. Um, not, not verbally. I will tell you today, men, you're being emasculated, denigrated. I mean, it's tough to be a man, but that's, you know what? That's, that's what men are for. We're going to be able to handle all that stuff, right? How do you handle all that? Well, you get secure in your identity in Christ. You follow Christ. You don't have to go to the world to find your affirmation. You've got everything you need in this Bible, in the Spirit of God that's in you, and I might add, in the church. This place is a place for, there are lots of godly men around here that you can look to and kind of get an example and an example of what that looks like. The standard for, for uh, ministry and for men in ministry is to feed the flock. Now, we'll kind of go up the scale a little bit. In 1 Peter 5, now we're talking to pastors, Peter has the same standard for the elders, for the pastors of the church. He says, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder, I'm one of you, he says, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. He's like, man, take on the responsibility of feeding the flock. Now he's talking about spiritual feeding, like I'm doing right now, feeding out the word of God. But he's not just saying feed the word of God. He's saying do it with the right heart attitude. Not because you're getting a check. Not because you have to. Because you've got to want to. Right? Ask God to give you the want to. Maybe you don't have the want to today. God needs to give you the want to to be a faithful man. Is there a man in here? Don't raise your hand. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, man, this church stuff is a joke. This God stuff is for wimps. Listen, you don't even understand what the scripture says. The godliest man in the world is Jesus Christ, and yet he laid his life down for others. The Bible is the essence of what it is to be a man. Jesus Christ, of course, fulfilling that. And that man laid his life down for others. So a godly man is going to lay his life down for his family, for the flock that God gives him. And you say, well, I'm not a pastor, so I'm not going to worry about that. Well, you know what? We need to worry about that because God gives all of us a flock. Maybe it's those that you're, you're working among. Not everyone, not everyone here has the same type of flock, but it is the flock of God that is, he says, among you. Right? Don't worry about everybody else's flock. Your mom has told you that, right? I'm not worried about everybody else. I'm worried about you. Why did she say that? Because she's taking care of her flock. She's taking care of her chicks. Take care of the ministry group that God has given you if you're in a ministry. You head up a ministry. It could be mowing the lawn. It could be. It could. Be, it doesn't have to be a teaching ministry per se. But even if you have a, when you have a responsibility, look around and take care of the people that are around you. Take care of the kingdom seekers, right? Or the TNT class that God has given you, the fun in the sun class. We got pastors with ABF classes. They take care of those classes. They feed the flock. They take care. I got to take care of the local church. My job is to feed the flock of God. Is to make sure that we are cared for. That we're well fed. We're well watered, that they, our needs uh, spiritually are being met. 
as much as I do sincerely care about the health of the body of Christ outside of HBF, and I really do, it's super important. Like the network of sister churches that we have, our Living Faith Fellowship uh, church uh, that we, we work with, all of those, those networks are so important. But at the judgment seat of Christ, guess which church I'm going to be held accountable for? This one, right? Take care of the flock that is among you, right? What God has entrusted to you. There's a lot of pastors always looking to the next church, the next thing. Why? Because it's a business. You got to take care of the flock that's among you before you, I mean, why would God give you another flock? Take care of what's in front of you. It's a calling, not a business. All right, so, so the clear call of God, God calls the, con, the content, God calls the faithful, God calls the captivated. You know, in verses 2 through 6, we're all kind of corrupted from, you know, Cecil B. DeMille and Charlton Heston. But let's just kind of get a fresh look at, at this. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. I mean, he is captivated by what he sees. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God, to see God called him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And he said, draw nigh hither. Put off thy shoe from off thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. There's a lot in here. I could go really the rest of our time here, but I'm going to try to move quickly. I want you to notice this. Moses was captivated by the appearance of the burning bush. Why? Because it was unexpected. It was unexplained. It was also educational, and it was supernatural. This bush has a lot of things in it. I mean, it just totally caught him off guard. You know, he's just doing his thing, and all of a sudden God shows up. You may, you may be like that this morning. You just rolled in this morning, and all of a sudden God shows up, and he's talking to you. It's totally unexpected. You're like, you came to church to hear from God, and then he showed up and spoke. Whoa, imagine that. But it's also unexplainable. What he sees cannot be explained because it's ultimately supernatural. But also it's educational. There's some things that we can learn about this burning bush. The sight is way more incredible than, than uh, what you can imagine, I think, or what I could imagine. This would have been an awesome thing to behold. And he's curious, and he's captivated by it. Now, Moses was captivated by the appearance of Jesus, ultimately. It wasn't just a burning bush, although it was a bush that burned and was not consumed. But ultimately, this is, this is really what we call a Christophany or a theophany. Uh, that's right, it's the appearance of Jesus long before he was born to Mary. The Old Testament is filled with several appearances of the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. We saw him appear to Abraham in Genesis 18, 1 through 5. He shows up there. Yeah, he hasn't been physically born, but yet he shows up in what we call his pre-incarnate state. Uh, and so we see him appear to Jacob in Genesis 32, 24 through 30. That's when he wrestled with him all night. That's where Jacob got his name, Prince of God, Israel. In Genesis chapter 32, um, when he appeared to Jacob there, it was, in the, it was you know, physically wrestling. Later on in Genesis 48, as Jacob's now an old man and he's in Egypt, God, Jesus appears to him, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a vision. 
and tells him, hey, Jacob, you will leave Egypt and your seed will leave Egypt, actually tying right into this promise of Moses. And we see him appear to Balaam in Numbers, of course, after, we, after this uh, in history, things go on forward. And Balaam, uh, his, his uh, ass is stopped in the middle of the road there and, and, and on its way, the angel of the Lord stops so that he could redirect Balaam. And we see him appear to Joshua in Joshua 5.13. And of course, uh, he's, he's, he's the captain of the Lord of hosts there. And each of these appearances, he's, a, he's, he's still Jesus, and he's coming across just a little different in each one. In that case, um, uh, of course, Joshua uh, falls before him and worships him. And then we, saw him, we see him in 1 Kings 19, as I've already mentioned. He appeared to Elijah there on Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And we see him appear... Uh, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He's not called the angel of the Lord in Daniel 3.25, but Nebuchadnezzar points out he's the son of God. There's one like the son of God with them in the fiery furnace, and they're not burned. Think about that. So they're under intense persecution by one of the greatest types of the Antichrist in the Bible, and they're not burned. It's sort of like Pharaoh persecuting Israel and persecuting Israel. And instead of them wilting, they continue to grow. They're not destroyed. It's sort of like church history, as the church has been persecuted and persecuted and persecuted, and the more we're persecuted, the more we multiply. Why? Because this is God's, this is God's DNA. This is God's character. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Moses was captivated, also captivated because this was a sign, and he was a Hebrew. 1 Corinthians one twenty two tells us that Jews require a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. And throughout the whole Bible, of course, especially starting here in Exodus, we see these incredible signs that God provides to verify his word to the nation of Israel. And this will be the first of many signs given to Israel, but this, is one, <clears throat> this one is from Moses. And the significance of this bush and the fiery uh, and the fire typify aspect of aspects of Israel's relationship with God. First, we understand that God is a consuming fire, but the bush is not consumed. Right. So his his nature, Deuteronomy four twenty four says, "The Lord, for the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God." So there must be something unique about this bush. For our God is a consuming fire, is reiterated in Hebrews twelve twenty nine. That's not just Old Testament principle. That's forever and ever. Amen. God is a consuming fire. This is a holy setting. The bush pictures Israel, who is under intense persecution, as I've mentioned, yet will not be consumed. And the picture goes further, though. As Jesus, who is in the midst of the fire, represents the branch, with a capital B, the, the personal pronoun that will later be prophesied in Isaiah 11.1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The branch was prophesied not only to come forth of Jesse, but long before Jesse, the branch was called Shiloh and would be a lawgiver and would come from between the feet of Judah. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come and him shall the gathering of the people be. Notice uh, uh, Moses draw, was the one who drew God's people out of Egypt. But the prophecy in Genesis 49 is someone will come with a scepter, a king, through Shiloh. And he will, and he will it says, gather the people. Right? He's going to gather the people. 
And of course, that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Israel collectively is considered the Son of God in Exodus 4.22. We'll get to that. That passage says, And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, as he addresses Pharaoh, Thus thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. I bring that up because Israel is a son of God in in a type of Jesus Christ, but as a whole, corporately, is called a son of God. We are individually called sons of God, and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And none of us, none of us, all of us, let me say, let me put that the other way around, all of us are eternal. Israel has eternal security. Now you say, wait a minute, in the Old Testament they didn't have eternal security. No, they didn't individually. They did not have eternal security. And they will not in the tribulation. However, as a nation, God has made a covenant promise with Israel and he's going to keep his promise to that nation. They are, they will, it will happen exactly the way the Bible says. He will rule and reign through Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel will receive their inheritance. Now, some of the Jews won't receive it. Some of them will be lost. Some of them will be damned because not individual, not every individual Jew uh, was saved. And in the New Testament, all men must get saved through who? Jesus Christ. If you're Jewish, by the way, and you don't acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Messiah, you are hopelessly lost if you keep every bit of the law, which you cannot do. That is why you're lost, because the law will slay you, and you rejected your Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of the law. He is, and that's how we become the sons of God, is through the new birth. It's an interesting thing here, because as, as Moses is, is seeing this, 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 uh, this bush is not consumed. It's, it's there, uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Christophany or a... Um, a uh, theophany, whichever you want to call that. And Jesus Christ is noted as being the Son of God in Luke one thirty six. Just as Israel was in the fire of persecution as the Son of God, Jesus was like a burnt offering for us as he was sacrificed for our sin, being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus suffered for our sin, yet was not consumed. And Israel, as a nation, has a covenant promise that will keep her from being utterly destroyed by the fires of persecution and even the coming tribulation. And we've even seen that through her dispersion on multiple occasions in history, at least twice now. So the significance of the fire and and Jesus' relationship also typifies our relationship with him in the church for for in the in the uh, in the tabernacle which will come later in the in the law here as, as the law gets given to Moses. We'll see this menorah it has seven candles and it, and it burns in the tabernacle and it lights up the showbread. And the menorah in the law has these seven knobs with seven flames, and it was, it, was, it was fueled by oil, olive oil, pure olive oil, a type of the Holy Ghost. And the purpose was to illuminate the showbread, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, the bread of life. In Revelation chapter 1, the Bible speaks of the church. The churches are like candles, and in the midst of the candles that are burning is who? Jesus Christ. He's in the midst of our fire as well. And we're like candles. Those seven churches are likened to those candles. So Moses can take comfort knowing that Jesus is in the midst of the seven... Like Moses, I'm sorry. We can take comfort knowing that Jesus is in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And he dwells in his saints as well. Literally, he is in us of a truth. Amen? I mean, anything you go through, Jesus Christ is in the midst of it because he lives in us. 
So God calls the content, God calls the faithful, God calls the captivated, and God calls those who speak to the sheep. Now this is a peculiar little thing that, I, that is in this text that we just read. It says, and Moses said, and uh, I almost didn't make this a point, but this captivated me enough that I thought, I'm going to throw this in, and it makes him have seven points instead of six. And so Moses, he speaks, right? But his only audience is the sheep. You ever do that? Like talking to the dog, hey, August, you know. That, there's no, he sees a burning bush. He hasn't heard from God yet. And he's speaking. It says it. Look at the text. It says, and Moses said, it didn't, it, he didn't think it. He said it. I will now turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burnt. I saw that and I thought, well, who's he talking to? There's not, not a note of anyone else being around other than Moses. He had to be talking to his sheep. I thought, wow, that's interesting. Moses speaks but his audience is sheep. You see, Moses here in the wilderness is in, a, is in a situation where he's completely alone. And we know that the sheep, right, are a picture of Christians. Mark, Mark actually, 16:15 tells us that we're to preach the gospel to every creature. So if you don't have any humans to preach to, just go preach to some sheep, go talk to your dog, go preach to the cattle. I don't know. But Mark, Mark 16:15 says, preach to every creature. We also know that the, the creation is waiting for the redemption of the sons of God. You know, this planet really is under duress, not because of global warming, but because of endemic sin, because of the fall of man. And when Jesus returns and he sets things in order, creation will be rejoicing because the Messiah, the Creator, has returned and things will be set right. But this is a great picture of how Christ speaks to his sheep. In John chapter 10, the Bible tells us in verse 22, and it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked into the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If, there be, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Moses had a relationship with his sheep. The difference between God and man is like the difference between a shepherd and his sheep. When I think about a man speaking to his sheep, I just almost laugh. I think that's kind of silly. Why? Because sheep are dumb. I mean, they're dumber than my dog. And I got a dumb dog. His name's Cole. (laughs) But when you think about God taking time to speak to us, man, we're just like a dumb sheep. That analogy is not to be lost. I thought it was cool. I see Moses speaking to his sheep. Why? Because Jesus speaks to us. Does he have to? No. Do we even comprehend what he's saying? Uh, not most of the time. But yet, praise God, he speaks to us. Man, you, you're like wondering, what, what's God saying? Well, that's why God has given us his book. And he's given us his spirit. You know, when I got saved, before I got saved, I tried to read the Bible. I could not understand it. It literally was, people say, it's like Greek to me. It was like a foreign language, even though it was in English. A lot of people say, well, it's hard because it's the king's English. No, not in my case. 
had nothing to do with the King's English. I can read. I can, I'm phonetically, I can read. It, I needed the spirit of the living God. Once I got saved and opened up this book, guess what? I started hearing the shepherd. I heard his voice. You know what he told me? Follow me. Follow me. That's what he's telling us this morning. Follow him. So Moses, he, he, he hears this, this he, he speaks to his sheep, and he has respect for those sheep because he, like Jesus, is a good shepherd. Jesus said in John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Man, he's not just leading the sheep and feeding the sheep and keeping the sheep. Jesus says, I'm going to give my life for the sheep. We laugh because it's silly to think about talking to sheep. Let's go to the next step and talk about laying our life down for the sheep. How valuable are those sheep? Are they worth your life? Most of us say, nope, go ahead, you can have them. I'll go buy another herd. They're not worth it. Jesus said, no, I'm not just speaking to the sheep. I'm going to die for the sheep. It's important, uh, as later in Exodus, Moses will be commanded to speak to the rock. But instead of speaking, he smites it. And God will judge him harshly for not speaking to the rock because Jesus is the chief shepherd. You see, the, the lesson there is you don't beat the sheep. You lead the sheep. So God is calling us today. He's calling some to salvation. He's calling some to sanctification. He's calling saints to service. He's calling, he's calling some of us to sacrifice. God's call is clear. God calls the, the content. He calls the faithful. He, he calls the captivated. He calls those who speak to the sheep. And fifth, he calls those who draw near to him. In verse 4 it says, When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses! And he said, Here am I. As soon as Moses turned aside, God called. Right? He didn't do it any sooner than that. This is the first mention of the phrase, turned aside, in the Bible. And the Bible opens with Moses turning aside to see God in the burning bush. The Bible closes with Paul's warning in 1 Timothy 1.6 and 5.15 about people who turn aside. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy 1.6 says, from which some having swerved have turned aside into vain jangling. There are people today who are turning aside. In the last days, perilous times shall come. That's the context. People will turn aside from this book. In 1 Timothy 5.15, the Bible says, for some are already turned aside after Satan. Here, the Bible opens with this phrase, turn aside, and we see Moses turning aside to what? Hear from God, to see the burning bush, to to have a meeting with God. And yet today, the Bible is proliferated all over the place. There are churches everywhere. You can get it on the Internet. You can get a hold of God's Word, and yet people simply turn aside from the truth of God's Word. Beloved, there's problems because people are not wanting to hear the call of God. And that's why judgment is coming. But once Moses turned aside to God, he heard God. And this is what he heard specifically in verse 4. Moses, Moses, as he repeated his name twice. It had to be an incredible thing to hear the God of the universe call him out by name. Moses, Moses. I often tell a funny story, and it is funny. But it's also true. I've been in church services like this, and, and God literally just called my name. And I, I have told this story many times, but it just lives a huge impact on me. 
when a man was preaching on standing in the gap, and as he got into that message, you know, about being Baptist and not Baptist, he just he yelled out, Are there any hedges in here? Are there any hedges in here that will stand in the gap? <laughs> and some of you haven't heard that story. It's true. And you know what? God was calling my name. Now, nobody knew it. I mean, I wasn't, but I felt like I needed to stand up and go forward and say, here am I, send me. Because where I was at at that moment in my life, God made it abundantly clear, Brian, this message is for you. That pastor was from out of town. I don't even know who it was now. I don't remember. I think he's fallen if, I, if, if it's the guy I think it is. Wonderful message, though. God used it in my life. Wouldn't that be ironic? A guy who fell. Is anyone going to stand in the gap? Who's going to stand in the gap? Anyway, my point is, when you hear God call your name, and he does it in different ways, when God's calling your name, you better listen. And don't, don't blow it off. Moses joins an elite company of individuals whom God has called by name. Now, I want to say this. Um, when I'm talking about calling your name, you don't need an audible voice of God call, right? We're not charismatics around here. I mean... All you need is the Word of God. God, if, your name is, if you're born again, your name is Christian. Just open up the Bible and do what a Christian does. You're called. That's it. Romans chapter 1, we're all called. We're all servants of God. So there, that's all cleaned up. But there are times when God just really lets you know, I'm talking to you. You need to listen. Moses, was, he joins this elite company of individuals whom God had called, repeating their name twice. The first was Abraham. He said, Abraham, Abraham. And that was what God called him. When God called him in Genesis 22 and verse 11, and he was about to throw, thrust that knife down through his son, and God's like, Abraham, Abraham! And he stopped, and of course you know how that went. The ram caught in the thicket. The first mention of worship was there in that chapter, Genesis chapter 22. As Abraham was going to trust God to raise his son from the dead, God stopped him and said, no, I'll, I'll give you my son instead. You go ahead and take Isaac. The next time we see is Jacob. He goes, Jacob, Jacob! He's crying out in the night as Jacob awaited consolation that his seed would not languish in Egypt. God promised his promised seed would indeed return to the promised land. That's that passage I mentioned in Genesis chapter 42, I believe it is. And then Moses, of course we see it right here. Moses, Moses, as he's going to give him the covenant promises of Abraham and give him the law and the commandments to steward throughout time. Samuel, Samuel was the cry of the Lord as he stood in the temple to speak to Samuel of his impending judgment on the house of Eli. Martha, Martha! No, he didn't say Martha, Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. (laughs) A gentle rebuke because she was upset that her her sister Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus instead of dealing with all the responsibilities of the hostess. And then there's Simon, Simon. Satan hath desired to have you, Simon. Simon, Simon. Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you like wheat as he spoke to Peter. Peter had no idea how intense the spiritual warfare was in the coming hours just in front of him. And he's like, oh, Jesus, I'll die for you. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, before the cock, the, uh, cock crows thrice, you'll deny me. Peter had to learn, didn't he? And then there's, my God, my God, Psalm chapter 22 Matthew 7:46, Mark 15:34, where God cries out to himself, the Son to the Father, "My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me?" And we find the answers in Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. 
And then the last mention in the Bible is Saul. Saul, Saul! Why do you persecute me? What are you doing, man? These people that you're hauling into the, out of these houses, that guy Stephen, man, that's, that's me. You persecute them, you're persecuting me. Of course, he fell down and worshipped. Today, we can take comfort knowing that we can draw near without fear. Isn't that a blessing? It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God, according to Hebrews 10.31. However, we take comfort knowing that Jesus Christ gave us entrance into the Holy of Holies through His shed blood. Hebrews 10.19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us through the veil, this is, that is to say, His flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Beloved, we're not under that, that burden of, of a fearing God in the same sense, but I tell you what, we still deal with a holy God. And so we give thanks. It's Thanksgiving season, right? We give thanks to God for giving us passage into the Holy of Holies. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. We were like dumb sheep, but yet God has made us priests and he has made us kings. He has made us sons of God through his shed blood. He has drawn us to himself. He he calls all who draw near to him. And six, God calls those who follow his instructions. Verses uh, 5 through 10 are, are specific instructions as we finish up this text. God reminds Moses of his sinfulness in verse 5. He says, draw not nigh hither. So he turns, he does all this work to get Moses' attention, and then he says, stop right there. Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. This had to be terrifying to Moses as he's now informed that he is in the presence of God Almighty. Taking off shoes is in Oriental culture to this day a reminder of our unworthiness and our, and our, and our dirtiness and our sinfulness in the biblical context to enter into a sanctified setting. In the West, we remove our hats as we enter a building in, in honor right, of the holy or in honor of, those, of the, the place we enter. In the East, they under, the understanding is different because they understand as they enter that their feet are defiled, right? That, that, that is the dirt from this world. This world, this earth is cursed. So you take off those shoes. You don't bring that filth into uh, the sanctuary, so to speak, of the home or the building. In a religious context, uh, in the East, they still wear bare feet in many of the religious observances. You may remember when the statue of Saddam Hussein uh, was torn down. They were out in the street with their shoes off, beating that, that statue. Why? Because that, their, their shoe represented uh, defilement and they, as they beat him and defiled him, or at least his image. Um, and so, uh, and they also threw it. Remember that one dude, he threw a shoe at George Bush? I got to say, George was quick. But it was not just that he was trying to, he could have threw something heavier, he could have threw a baseball, but throwing a shoe was, was, was symbolic. It wasn't just throwing something, it was throwing a shoe, it was symbolic, because if that shoe hits you, you're defiled. And so you can imagine, as, as he says, take off thy shoes, right? He's saying, this place is holy, Moses. You've entered holy ground. God informs uh, Moses of his holiness, not just of Moses' sinfulness, but his holiness. He says, the place wherein thou standest is holy ground. Now, this is the first mention of the word holy in the Bible and the first mention of the phrase holy ground in the Bible. Uh, And so the second mention of of holy 
ground is Acts 7.33, and you have the full mention when Stephen recounts this very uh, situation here in Exodus chapter 3. So the ground was cursed from the fall of Adam. Now God is, is, is making it holy. Isn't that interesting? He cursed the ground in Genesis, and now he's saying this is holy ground because his presence was there. And this, will be the, this is the location where the law will be given and the pattern for the tabernacle. And, of course, eventually uh, there will be an Ark of the Covenant. Where, and wherever the Ark goes, the ground is holy. In Second Chronicles 8.11, Solomon would not let um, uh, the, 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 uh, the, his wife enter into David's house because she was from Egypt. And the reason was because the Ark had traversed there. In Second Chronicles 8.11, the Bible says, And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David unto the house that he had built for her. For he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel. Why? Because the, pla- the places are holy, whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. The, the, the branch, the, the, the ark of the testament, the manna was in the ark. Where that ark went was holy. There were 3,000 souls that died near where Moses was standing at this, at this meeting with God because they participated in idolatry and worshipped the golden calf. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because he's holy. We talk about the love of God. I just heard on Christian radio this week, you know, God just loves us and God loves us and God does love us so much that he gave his only begotten son, but he hates our sin. Our sin, is he can't have anything to do with our sin. So he loves us and is demonstrated in the fact that he took on our sin, but he doesn't love our sin. He doesn't love our sin. His, our sin cost God his life. Because Jesus Christ is God. Our sin is despicable. And when you're in, before a holy God, you are in fear. Moses falls to his face, it says, because he was afraid to look upon God. Why? Because he knew that he would die. It's truly a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Second Peter 3 says this, Seeing then that, that, all these, <clears throat> that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conversation and godliness? When God pulls back the veil and he shows his glory out on the universe, what's going to happen to it? It will dissolve. It will burn. Right? God says, I'm not going to judge the earth anymore with water. But he will judge it with fire. And he is a consuming fire. He is holy. Understanding this, Peter says, Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. When you recognize that you are not only looking at the bush, but you are in the bush because Christ is in you, man, what manner of conversation and lifestyle ought we to have? We are to be holy. Why? Because he's holy. We're holy because he's holy. Point C. God, oh, you, I don't know if you have a point C. God identifies who is calling here in verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of the, the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and of Moses. And he hid his face and was afraid. See, he wanted to make sure that he wasn't confusing him with any other gods. This is the God of your fathers, Moses. This isn't Ra the sun god, the Egyptian god of creation. And he's going to, go to, he's going to send Moses into Egypt to go toe-to-toe with that belief system. He will illuminate Moses further on his name in verse 13, but we'll get to that next week. So God explains the reason he's calling as well. 
He says, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And he he lays all this out. He says, now, Moses, look, I've seen this affliction, and I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. He's seen the affliction of Egypt. How? Well, because 2 Corinthians 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God was allowing that persecution to prepare their heart. Here and thou hast done foolishly, therefore uh, from henceforth thou shalt have wars. Right? They were having, God was preparing the heart of Israel to be redeemed. Psalms 34, 15 says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The ways of men are before the eyes of the Lord, and he pondered their goings. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. Amos 9, 8 says, Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from off the face of the earth, saving that I will utterly destroy the house of Jacob, saith the Lord. God says, I look at men and I look at kingdoms, and I judge in righteous judgment. He's like a consuming fire. This is a great comfort as Moses will be addressing the cult that believes that they have divine illumination through the all-seeing eye of Ra or Horus. And he heard their cry, it says, You know what? The Lord's hand is not short that it cannot hear, and his ear is not heavy or that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot, cannot hear. He, he didn't just see the affliction. He heard their cry, and he makes sure that his people know that they, he's, he's listening to what they say. And he knows, he says, their sorrows. He is intimately aware of the sorrows of his children. You know, the Bible tells us that Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Right? He was tempted in all points like us, yet without sin. But he not only knows what we're experiencing, but he knows how we feel. And so God gives the expectations of the call. And he says in verse 8, And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now notice the, the line of, 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 of communication here. I mean, Moses is in complete and utter awe. And he's recounting why he's, why am I here, Moses? Well, I'm telling you, this is why we're meeting. I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto, unto a good land and large and land flowing with milk and honey unto the place of the Canaanites, uh, the, Canaanites the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So God came down for deliverance, right? That's why he came. I'm come down to deliver them out of these Egyptians' hands. And it's worth noting that Moses had already been delivered. So the reason God is calling you to deliver others, by the way, is because you've already been delivered. And is God calling me today? Are you saved? If you're saved, yes, he is. He's calling you to go. He's calling you to go ye therefore and teach all nations. He's calling you for a massive call, just like he did Moses. God came down for an inheritance, too. He's coming down to bring them up out of the land into a good and large land. He said, I want to give you the, the inheritance. I want to give them the inheritance. And God came down to lead them to his providence. It's flowing with milk and honey. And God came down to execute judgment on his enemies. Those enemies that he listed are the ancient enemies of Israel. And when you add Egypt in there, that makes the seventh one. So it's perfect judgment. You see, realize spiritual persistence brings satanic resistance. And God even ordains those enemies because God will be glorified through that. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, the apostle Paul is going forward in faith. He says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Sometimes people, Christians, will because there's adversity. Beloved, we should expect adversity. God takes his children out of bondage and puts them right into another. There's there's six times more problems where they're going than where they just came from. 
Why does he do that? Why does he allow us to stay in this wilderness journey and deal with all these issues? Because he gets the glory over all those, because they're nothing for him. He needs to see if we'll trust him. God wants us to respond, and he wants us to do it now. Now, this is where it comes to a head for Moses in verse 9. So Moses, you know, he's just like, he's like, I just don't want to die, I don't want to die, I don't want to die, right? And then God, and God gives him, this is why I'm here. I'm answering the call. Why didn't he go to Egypt and do this? Because he was calling Moses. He went all the way to the backside of the desert, Mount Sinai, and he, calls, he meets Moses there, and he says, Now, therefore, <clears throat> Moses, wake up. Behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come unto me, and I've seen the oppression where the Egyptians oppressed them. I just recounted it. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. He's like, behold, like get a hold of this right now, Moses. Now get a hold of why I'm here. I'm here because I'm calling you to do something about what I'm hearing. God wants Moses to be moved immediately to answer the call obediently. You know, the Bible says in James 4, 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Basically, God says, hey, I'm here to deliver the news, Moses. This is what I'm hearing in Egypt. I know you've been out of touch. Now that you've heard the news, guess what? Now it's your responsibility to go. You see, guys, i got some news for you. This world is dying and going to hell. There are people who don't know Jesus. There are people who have not heard the name of Christ. There are people who are destined for an eternity separated from God. And guess what? Now that you know that, it's your turn to go. We've all got to go. That's what Jesus did. He came to this earth to send us. The God, the clear call of God comes from the word of God. It comes through Jesus. God calls the content. He calls the faithful. He calls the captivated. He calls those who speak to the sheep. He calls those, those who draw near to him. And he calls those who follow his instructions. But last and, and most importantly, he calls those who humble themselves before him. When Moses hears all this, of course he says, Who am I? In verse 11. Moses is humbled by the call of God. It is a humbling thing to know that God actually wants and will and desires and commands us to go. I don't want to go. That's between you and God. He's called you. Go ye. You're in that ye. Therefore, and teach all nations. Moses is like, but who am I? The answer to who we are is found in the I am. You just reverse that. Moses realizes his limitations before a holy God. As strong as Moses was, he was too weak in his flesh to take on the task. As old as Moses was at 80, he was, too, he was still too inexperienced, or thought he was, to take on the task. When he was younger, he might have said, Yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. I'm ready to go. But he wasn't ready. Why? Because he wasn't humble. As long as Moses had been gone, he was still concerned about this, his standing with his brethren as well. We'll see that in the coming chapter. In Matthew 19, 28, the Bible said, But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. You may feel like Moses this morning. You're like, man, Brian, why do you lay so much heavy stuff on me? Well, I got news for you. I don't. That's God. But the good news is his yoke is easy 
and his burden is light. Romans 8.31 says, What shall we say then to these things? If God be with us, who can be against us? You know what? That in essence is what we're going to see as we see Israel come out of bondage. Because God is with them. He's with them at the law. He's with them in the tabernacle. He's with them in the Ark of the Covenant. Because God is with them. There's nothing and no one that can stand against them. Beloved, if we really understood with whom we have to do, I think the world would be turned upside down. The truth is clear. The call of God is going out this morning, not to the qualified, but to the contrite heart. We don't have to bring anything to the table other than a humble and contrite heart. However, God will use all the experiences before and bring you to such a time as this to accomplish his purpose for his honor, for his glory. When God went about to find a king in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7, not even Samuel the prophet could sense who the anointed one was. Who is the anointed? Who is it that God is going to use? But God had already prophesied it many years ago. Well, it's going to be that one that, that's going to bear the branch, and he's going to come out of Judah, and he's going to come through Jesse, right? It was all laid out, and it, it was already established. But they couldn't see it. But you know what we're told? It wasn't the outward appearance. It was the inward. It was the man of the heart. And among all the people that God called, it was a child among the sheepfold, just like Moses, a man tending his sheep. One thing is for sure. I can tell you this. You will not be called to lead the sheep if you're not found serving among the sheep. Beloved, if you want to know if, if you're answering the call or not, or let me ask you, are you serving among the sheep? Because in every case, these guys are all shepherds, and they're all serving among the sheep. That's the analogy that is consistent throughout the Bible. If you're born again, man, you need to be plugged into the local church, and you need to be serving among the sheep. Or you'll never hear the call of God, even though God is calling your name. Christian! Christian! Go ye therefore and teach all nations. You're unplugged. It's like having a can of gas over here and a motor over there. They'll ne the two will never meet. You've got to be connected to get the power. Amen? Let's stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. To